0: Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. We are currently looking for storytellers for the next Tell Us Something storytelling event. The theme is, it's the little things. If you'd like to pitch your story for consideration, please call 406-203-4683. You have three minutes to leave your pitch. The pitch deadline is November 7th. I look forward to hearing from you. This week on the podcast...
1: You would be also able to see, I think, how much I like the quality of things. It's small and simple, this house, but everything is well done.
0: She goes, Can we do it again? I was like,
1: Yeah.
2: We meet Matthew, our mortician. And Matthew looks like, or reminds me of Lurch from the Adams family.
3: Bow ties and tuxedos and crushed velvet dresses, and we are in jeans and t shirts.
0: Four Storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, Letting Go. Their stories were recorded live in person in front of over 900 listeners on September 27, 2022 at the Denison in Missoula, Montana. We wouldn't have been able to produce this event without the help of our title sponsor, The Good Food Store. We are so grateful to the team at The Good Food Store for their support. Learn more about The Good Food Store at goodfoodstore.com. Tell us something acknowledges that we are on the aboriginal territories of the Salish and Kalispell people. You hear this at events all the time. What does it mean? Who cares, right? I've been thinking about it a lot. Why do we say it? Most of the time, it's white folks that are saying it. Are we trying to make ourselves feel better? What are we doing here? When I came to Montana, to the west, from Ohio, which Ohio is the land of the Kaskia and Erie tribes, at least the part where I lived, I wore a Cleveland Indians hat. Some of you know this former name of this baseball team. And uh, the mascot allegedly was to celebrate the Native peoples. It's a pretty racist mascot if you haven't seen it. And I was traveling out with a a traveling companion who was admonishing me about my hat. And I dismissed her out of hand. I was wrong to do that. And I started thinking more about that as I started thinking about land acknowledgments. And why I do them is not just to honor the people whose land we stole, not us particularly, but everyone in here who's white, our ancestors stole the land. We can't do anything about that, but we can admit it, honor the people who live with us and work with us and recreate with us who are native to this land. So again, Again, I say, we are on Salish and Kootenay land. We take this moment to honor them and the stories that they share with us. Our first story comes to us from Kate Wilburn. Kate loves wood and woodworking. She learned the craft of timber framing 40 years ago, collected materials for a timber frame house, hauled them around for 30 years and is now ready to let them go. Kate calls her story, Dovetail, a love story. Thanks for listening.
1: Okay, so step into my kitchen with me. On the cherry countertops, there are two jars of beans. Every morning, I take a bean from the jar labeled Ten Years, Ten Good Years, days left and I move it to the other jar labeled 10 good years days past I've been doing this for three years with my friend Joseph it's an amazing thing to watch the days of one's life pass a bean at a time Here we are in my small old house in Missoula. It was pretty sad until I remodeled it. And now it's cozy and beautiful. Looking around, you'll see right away how much I love wood. The hemlock, fur, trim, the raised panel, fur doors, those cherry countertops, the maple kitchen cabinets, the old growth Douglas fir floor underneath that's original, and that I didn't know was there until I unearthed it from layers and layers of goop. So... You would be also able to see, I think, how much I like the quality of things. It's small and simple, this house, but everything is well done. And if you looked out to the back side of my lot and saw the old, ugly shed, you would wonder and be mystified, why the heck has she let that thing stand? It's a love story, not with the shed, (laughs) but with the small timber frame that's sheltering inside. I learned the art of timber framing as a young woman and I love it as much as I love wood because it's like creating a beautiful large piece of furniture that is going to become a home or another building. Timber frames use big, massive pieces of wood, polished and carefully cut with strong joints that hold them together, like dovetails. You might have seen a dovetail, if you've ever pulled the drawer out of an old, well-made dresser. The front is attached to the side, with these amazing triangular joints. Those are the dovetails. And they're not only beautiful, but they're strong. So let's go back to the shed and the tiny timber frame. It's the sixth one I've cut and designed in my life. And that was 30 years ago. Back then I was married to an auctioneer and our home was pretty chaotic. So I imagined a quiet refuge back behind the house. Unfortunately, the marriage ended before I got the timber frame finished and standing. By then, not only had I invested cash and an incredible amount of careful, painstaking work, but also a fair amount of fondness and I chose to move it with me. The next place that found us was a small home in North Carolina and I thought it would be a perfect screen porch. Unfortunately, the tiny timber frame and I ran amok of the HOA rules. (laughs) Oh well. When I became a nomad, I thought that was the perfect ending at last because it's only 8 feet by 12 feet this tiny timber frame and it fits really super well on a trailer to pull down the road the deal though is that the rafters are 14 feet long and that's to make good overhangs on either side to shade the walls but it's way too wide for highway safety <laughs> it means that all this pile of lovely wood with intricate joints has been so far is a little building waiting to be a building. Every time I moved, I I checked in with myself. Do I still have hopes for this little critter in me? Yeah, I do. So I've moved it from... Idaho, to Virginia, to North Carolina, to California, to Idaho again, and finally to Montana. This is the year. (laughs) Finally, um, I've got the plans, I've got the permits. There's some 220 volt electrical work involved, and it's a little bit dangerous, but it's simple, and my friend Mike and I are going to do it. Then he calls. His master electrician brother has a sudden emergency and he's not going to be available in case something goes wrong. It's a catalyst. It's actually one of several, but I don't have time to tell you the rest of them. So I ask myself, is it time to throw in the towel on this? I don't want to. I can so clearly see it nestled in my backyard. These hand-carved knee braces arching around windows where beautiful patchwork curtains hang that mom and I stitched together (laughs) so many years ago. And I've saved them all this time for this building. But other possibilities whisper. There are other big dreams that I've held forever. I feel the preciousness of time. And I know that when I get real, this project is at least a nine-month project to bring to completion. So, here... Tonight, with you, I'm going to take a deep breath. I might cry a little bit. <laughs> I think it's time for me to stop building things, it's time to leap into the unknown of these other dreams. It's time to look for a new owner for this small building and for a different ending to the love story. I don't have any clue how this will unfold and I don't have any idea how many beans of strong, healthy life remain to me. My friend Ruth just died. So, I'm ready to leap into the unknown of other dreams and I'm letting this one go.
0: Thanks, Kate. Kate Wilburn cherishes wild land and is keenly aware of legacy across generations. Her life's terrain is diverse, from engineering and carpentry to single parenting, permaculture design, and teaching. She's found in Missoula a place to show the beauty and practicality of living simply, of creating an urban yard that is a vibrant ecosystem of perennial food for people, birds, bees, and other wild things all at the same time. She seeks green wildness in a neighborhood like a village, even in the city. You can see a photo of the jars of beans on Kate's kitchen counter and learn more about Kate at tellussomething.org. Our next storyteller is Mark Moss. Hi there! Working third shift at a late-night coffee shop, I met all sorts of people. I generally made a connection with most of them until a regular customer, very grumpy, presented a challenge for me. I call my story Third Shift. Thanks for listening. I learned how to drink coffee when I was 17, working midnight shift at a grocery store in Ohio, much like the Orange Street Food Farm. Working third shift became something that I really enjoyed. The crew, I can't, I don't have the time to tell you how awesome they were and how weird they are. Still, But in those days, there were no 24-hour grocery stores. And so at 9 o'clock, we'd all shuffle in, lock the doors, and they would put coffee on and I would drink Coca-Cola or water, because I hate the taste of coffee at 17. And eventually, I got injured on the job and I I had to start drinking coffee. That's another story that I'm not telling you tonight. Tonight, I'm telling you about my love affair with Third Shift. And when I moved to Bozeman, Montana, I got another Third Shift job at a little copy shop called Kinko's. Kinko's doesn't exist anymore, right? It got bought out by some other company. So I can use the name. It's not product placement anymore. And Third Shift at the Bozeman Kinkos was great because like every Kinkos it was located on or near a university campus and when i was working there i would meet all sorts of folks and the architecture students were like frantic like outside chain smoking waiting for their copies to be done coming in building these intricate models out of foam core and and I was like, you know, that's going to be really expensive. I'm thinking in my mind, they come up and they, and they come to pay, and the bill's like 250 bucks. And I know that they're students, and I ask them, like, are you a student? And they're like, yeah, I'm great. And so I like ring them up for $75, and they're like, what? And I'm like, student discount. And they're like, okay, thank you. <clears throat> When I worked third shift at the Kinko's in Akron, I met a lot of interesting folks also on the university campus. But the, the urban environment of the University of Akron was much different than the University or the, the Bozeman campus, whatever they're called. <laughs> Go Grizz, I guess. <clears throat> so uh, I'd, I'd meet all kinds of folks, homeless folks coming in to stay out of the cold. There was a strip club about four blocks away, and so the the strippers would come in, and one of them would, like, sit up on the machine and copy her ass. And I'm like, hey, that's great. You know, clean the glass. And if you break it, you bought it. And she's like, don't worry, honey. And, like, Big Wayne would show up, and Big Wayne ran the strip club, and he'd, like, make these little coupons to get in for free. So, You know, really interesting folks, but at the Bozeman Kinko's, the architecture students weren't the only interesting folks coming in. There was a woman that came in all the time, and she sort of shuffled in. Older woman in her 50s, right? (laughs) Mousy-looking woman, really grumpy. She's like five foot two, sort of disheveled-looking. Super grumpy, and she'd come in. And in those days, when you came into the, the copy shop, there was a, like a little key counter. Remember those blue key counters? And plug it in the machine, and it counts off. I see you nodding. Counts off how many copies. And she'd make like four. She'd make like four copies and come in and t- to pay. And I did everything I could think of to try to reach her and, like, and talk to her. And she was ignored, she would never say a word to me. And I'm, I'm trying to think of whatever I can think of to, to try to make a connection with her. And I say, hey, sweetheart. And I start flirting with her. She doesn't want that. She doesn't, nobody does. <laughs> so then I'm mean to her, right? And she, like, walks up to pay, and I walk away. <laughs> Ignore her. She doesn't care. She, like, slams that thing on the counter, and like... <laughs> Then I'm like, overly nice to her. Is everything to your liking this evening? You know, nothing. When I was a kid, you know, Michael was telling that story about Penny right, learning to ride a bike. I remember learning to ride a bike. I had a blazing bullet, a Huffy with a banana seat and, you know, a lightning bolt down the side, and a sissy bar in the back. And I didn't have the cool backpack that Penny has. And uh, my dad would like hang on to the back, and and you know, just like Michael, let go without me knowing, and and I wrecked a lot, and because like who needs training wheels? Like I'm a boy, and but I also liked to cry and scream and yell when I got hurt, and you know my dad was like boys don't cry, suck it up, you know, and I would cry louder, and my aunt, the cool aunt, was like, that really must hurt, and I'm like, yeah, it it does, but I would stop crying, and I was thinking of that moment when this woman came in again, super grumpy, and I said, you seem kind of grumpy. She goes, what? I said, are you grumpy? starts looking around, she just hurting me. You know, all the machines are buzzing and you know, like. so I'm like, I gotta let go of that work and now I'm, I, I'm in it, I'm, like, I'm committed to this. And I start to think about the bike, you know, and my aunt validating me and like acknowledging like that must suck. And so I said, you know what I do when I'm grumpy? I copy my face. And she's like, what? And I've never done that before. And so I like, take her by the hand. Put your head on the glass, close your eyes, don't go blind. Zzz, zzz. And she's like, hey, and she like pulls the thing up, grabs it, look like, and she starts laughing. I'm like, this is great. She goes, Can we do it again? I was like, Yeah. She goes, We should make a bigger one. So I changed the size. 11 by 17. She's like, you should have one too. So we make two. She's like, I'm gonna do this some more. I'm like, great. I gotta go back to work. The machines back there aren't running anymore and if the machines aren't running, I'm gonna get in trouble. So knock yourself out. Um, I'll see you in a few minutes. So she's like there for five minutes making copies of her face, enlarging, making them really small, different sizes of paper. She comes back, she comes to pay, and she's laughing, and I'm like, what's your name? And she goes, my name's Ruby. I said, Ruby, I'm Mark, why are you so grumpy? And, and the copies are on me, like, put your purse away. She worked at the airport, third shift, second shift, I guess, because she'd always come in around two or three. This was before 9-11, so no TSA, so I don't know what she did at the airport. But apparently whatever it was at the end of shift was pretty slow. And so she was writing letters to her son every night and he wasn't returning her letters and he wasn't returning her phone calls and there was no texting in 2000. And she's grumpy and I said, that sounds really lonely and she goes, it sucks. And she stopped coming in. I don't know why. And what I'm hoping is, oh, because she said, I'm gonna use these face copies as stationery to send to my son. <laughs> and I didn't say this, but I thought, are you Catholic? Because that's a classic guilt trip. <laughs> but I didn't say that. <clears throat> Something my mom would pull. She didn't come back in. And what I'm I'm hoping is the reason she didn't come back in is because she was writing those letters to her son and he was seeing her and he was remembering her and he called her and he wrote her back. And that's all we all, all of us want is to be seen and heard and validated. Thanks, me. I'm the executive director of the nonprofit organization Tell Us Something. I recently hosted a Tell Us Something event at Burning Man where I've literally walked through fire with my life partner, Joyce. And the cool thing is you can search the Tell Us Something website for Burning Man and listen to that story without walking through the fire yourself. We live together on Missoula's historic north side with a perpetual kitten, Ziggy. To see one of the face copies that I made with Ruby, visit tellussomething.org. In our next story, Amy McAllister's dad dies two weeks after her mother dies. Amy visits his body in the funeral home, and the funeral director assures her that the body he has prepared for her is indeed her father's in a story that we call, That's Not My Dad. Thanks for listening.
2: Both my parents passed away about um, a few years ago, and they were both 93 when they passed away, and actually doing really well until they hit about 91 Um, My mom was still going to jazzercise classes, and my dad was playing golf and meeting up with his friends. Um, But at 91, it seemed like everything kind of started to fall apart. And my brother and sister and I all lived in Missoula, and my parents lived in Billings, and it seemed like every other week um, one of us was going down there for something. There was broken shoulder, broken ribs, sepsis, uh, some minor surgeries, furnace going out. So we tried everything we could to get my parents to move to Missoula, and they absolutely would not do it. They insisted on living in their own home, and they wanted to stay there. So they converted their basement into an apartment and hired a full-time caretaker, and then they had um, hospice and some other organizations come in, and so they were able to stay in their own home and pass away there. So, it was about mid-November of um, 2018 and we got a call from the hospice nurse that my mom wasn't doing very well and they said, if you want to see her before she passes away, you need to come down to Billings. So it actually took about four days for all of us to get to Billings, but we did and we were able to spend Wednesday with my mom and then that night she passed away. So my dad, at that time, was doing pretty well. Um, We spent Thanksgiving with him, and he actually came up to Missoula for Christmas. But um, I think when he he got back to um, Billings in January, he just was done. And I think what happens a lot of time when people have been together, spouses have been together for so long, my parents were married for over 70 years, when one passes away the other one passes away soon after so this was um, the middle of January now and we get the same call it's a Friday afternoon and we get the call from the hospice people that say your dad is not doing very well and if you want to see him you should come to Billings when you can and they said but his vitals are pretty good so he should be okay for a few days well this time My sister, Jane, and I decide we're going to go the next day. It's Friday afternoon. We're going to leave on Saturday. My brother's out of the country. Um, But that night, about 8.30, we got a call, and my dad had died. So the next day, we leave for Billings, and I am super upset. My mom had the whole family around when she passed away. My dad had nobody there. So... We're talking on the way down to Billings, and I say, I just feel like I need to say goodbye to Dad. And Jane, my sister, says, I want to remember him how he was at Christmas, and I don't want to see him. But I said, I think at the funeral home, maybe I should go in and say goodbye. So we get to Billings and go over to the funeral home, and the first, we meet Matthew, our mortician, And Matthew looks like, or reminds me of Lurch from the Addams Family. (laughs) He's tall, thin, kind of gaunt looking, but his most distinctive attribute is the way he talks, like Lurch. Real low and slow. So he leads us into the office, and we go over all the cremation um, arrangements, and... I asked Matthew, I said, Matthew, where's my dad now? And he goes, he's in the back room. Do you want to see him? And I said, well, Matthew, I don't know. I said, I don't think I've ever seen a body in a funeral home before. Is it going to look like my dad? And he said, oh, yeah, he'll be a little pale and his cheeks will be a little sunken, but it'll look like your dad. So I said, okay, if you're sure. And he goes, oh, it'll, it'll be fine. It'll look like your dad. So my sister leaves, and Matthew says, can you give me about 30 minutes to get him ready? So I go out into the lobby, the waiting room, and there's, I'm upset, but there's two things to distract you. There are two things to read. These big, giant brochures that have funeral packages and caskets or the penny saver. (laughs) So I grab the penny saver because I want nothing to do with the funeral stuff and I start reading the jokes and doing the trivia. You know, who played Laura Petrie on Dick Van Dyke's show? Oh, I know that one, you know. And Matthew comes to get me and he takes me back to this big, long, dark, creepy hallway with these three giant doors about the size, like, let's make a deal doors. And he leads me into the, into the room and quietly backs out and closes the door. And I go up to the bed, and I freak out because this guy looks nothing like my dad. And I run out, and I say, Matthew, that's not my dad. And he looks at me real sadly and goes, that's your dad. And I said, well, it doesn't look anything like my dad. And he, again, he goes... That's your dad. So, okay, my friends keep telling me how unobservant I am. And so I go back into the room, and I go up to the bed, and nothing. Now I really start studying my dad. Now this man is shorter than my dad. He's thinner than my dad. He has different coloring. And now I'm doing 360s around the bed trying to find something familiar, age spots I've never seen before, a bump in his nose. And I go to the top of his head and my dad had a pretty full head of hair and this guy has a couple strands of hair. I'm thinking, can you lo- a body lose all its hair in 18 hours? So now I'm convinced and I go back out and I find Matthew and I say, Matthew, that is not my dad. And again, he looks at me real sad, that's your dad. And I said, you're telling me that man in there is Bill McAllister? And I see him go, uh, just a second. And he goes into the back room and he comes back out and he says, uh, that's not your dad. I said, I know, that is what I've been trying to tell you. So he said, can you give me about 20 more minutes? (laughs) So I go back out in the lobby, finish I Dream a Genie and Dick Van Dyke trivia questions, and he comes to get me, and he says, I'm really sorry about this. This has never happened before. This is really your dad. I can prove it. There's a tag on his toe. (laughs) So... I say, no, just let me in and go see my dad. So I went into door number two for the third time. And I go up to the bed, and there's my dad. He's looking a little pale, and his cheeks are a little sunken, but it's definitely my dad. So I say my goodbyes to him, how much I love him and appreciated everything he did for us. And I walk home from the funeral home and about halfway home, I just start burst out laughing, thinking, this could only happen to me. (laughs) So I get home and my sister and some other relatives are there and some friends of my dad's and my sister, Jane, comes up to me and says, all concerned, oh, how did it go? And I just start laughing. And she goes, what happened? So I tell them all the story of what happened in the funeral home, and especially my dad's friends were just livid. And I said, really, it's okay. It brought a little levity to this really, really hard situation for me, and it's okay." So the next morning, I have the Billings Gazette, the morning paper, and I'm going through the paper, and I open up to the obituaries. And who's in there? My other dad. (laughs) So I yell for Jane, I go, Jane, come here. This is the guy they were trying to pass off as dad. <laughs> so she comes in and looks at his picture. We read all about him. His name, I think, was Mr. Santori. It sounded like he had a really nice life, <laughs> really nice family, which we were happy to read about. So I've told this story multiple times to a lot of different people. And some people think it's funny, some people are appalled, but I really do believe that the person that would have gotten the biggest kick out of this story and would have laughed the hardest would have been my dad.
0: Thanks, Amy. Amy McAllister comes from a strong and loving family and has lived in Missoula for 45 years. She loves the variety of events offered in Missoula and was a schoolteacher for 32 years. To see a photo of Amy's dad, visit tellussomething.org. Bringing us home in this episode of the Tell us Something podcast, Rachel Gouin, on a trip to New York City with her family and some of their international friends, visits a fancy ballet at the Met after eating pizza. Rachel calls her story, when letting go stops the show. Thanks for listening.
3: Alright, so it's 1983, I'm 13 years old and my family has a lot of international friends and I'm not going to get into how we have these international friends, but we do. So we have three Israeli boys staying with us and another family of Persian friends who just came from Iran, it was 1983, there was a lot of escaping from the Ayatollah, Khomeini. So my mom decides we're going to hit New York City. And so the ages of the three Israeli boys are 10 to 16, and of this lovely Iranian family, it's 9 to 16 with their lovely mother Mary, and I'm going, and my sister Jane, who is 16, and my mom. So we hit New York City, and New York City, for my mom, is all about shopping. Yeah. And so we go, and we, like, we're down on the Lower East Side, going to all the really funky, cool places, and then we hit Midtown. We, of course, go to like Bloomingdale's and FAO Schwartz. And that was kind of around when the movie Big came out, and they had like the piano on the floor. So we're all playing on the piano. It was super, super fun. And um, we go to this amazing store called Fiorucci's, which back then was like the bomb in New York City. And we are like shopping bag and shopping bag and shopping bag. And my mom decides for some reason what would really top this day is if we go to a ballet at Lincoln Center. So we go in, it's Saturday night. She goes in and she gets tickets. And the only seats that are left are in the ninth row in Lincoln Center in the orchestra. So I don't know if any of you have been to Lincoln Center and where the ballet is. It's actually kind of like this, except instead of 900 people, it has 2,500 people, and it has six layers of balconies all around, red velvet seats. It's super fancy, super plush. And so the woman looks at us... You know, and she says, well, okay, well, they're these ninth row seats if you want them. Yeah, sure, because, you know, cash is cash. So my mom says, they're ours. We decide to go across the street to a restaurant. It is the coolest restaurant ever. It was really known in New York City because all the waiters and waitresses roller skate. So for us kids, it was awesome to like have them roller skating by and have their pizza coming and it was very very cool. Now this is about the time when I think I started realizing that I couldn't eat certain foods and I think pizza was one of them and so we you know finished with our meal and we go back into Lincoln Center and um, the lobby is just filled with Lovely, lovely people dripping with pearls and diamonds and Chanel is over there and Yves Saint Laurent is over there and Gucci is there. I mean there is bow ties and tuxedos and crushed velvet dresses and we are in jeans and t-shirts with big brown bag and FAO shorts bag and there's 10 of us and we are just like this ragtag bunch kind of coming in. And uh, we go to the, you know, top of the theater and the usher looks at us as if, like, we must be going to the wrong seats. And he says, "Uh, yes, you are in the ninth row orchestra. So he walks us in and we, like, really fumble to get into all our seats because we have bags and people around us are just like, hmm, hmm, you know, looking. And, you know, we're kids and whatever. So we start to, we kind of fumble on, get in there. And I start to feel this grumbling in my stomach. And I'm like, I really got to go to the bathroom. And uh, so you got to remember it's 1983 in New York City. It was not a safe town uh, at all. My mother had the fear of God put into us whenever we went into New York City. You did not wear jewelry, you looked straight ahead. She marched really, really fast, and we traced after that mama duck as if we were all little baby ducks, afraid to get lost. And so, you know, I start whispering down the seats, you know, um, hey, anyone have to go to the bathroom? Um, Anyone want to go to the bathroom? And no one wants to go to the bathroom with me. The line is really, really long. And But remember, my mother, we weren't allowed to go in elevators alone. You weren't allowed to go to the bathroom alone. You weren't allowed to do anything alone in New York City. And why we would go in to this glorious place to be scared shitless was always a mystery to me. So, you know, I'm sitting there, and I'm like, okay, we're not going to be able to go to the bathroom. And, you know, the Israeli boys are sitting next to me. So it's El Dad and Ittai. And then on this side is Rachel, Roya, Rebecca, and Mary, our Persian friends. And then my mother and my sister Jane. So, um, you know, we got Hebrew over here. We got Farsi over here. And all of a sudden, like... Mary and Roy and Rachel are like talking about the person in front of them and they're like speaking in Farsi and all of a sudden the man turns around and says, in Farsi? You know, if you're going to talk about someone in front of them, you really should make sure they don't know your language. And what they were saying was, ooh, look at the egghead in front of you. His head is so perfectly round. And... You know, here we come in this ragtag bunch, and so we're insulting the other patrons and everything. So the, um, you know, the place that play the ballet starts, and I, of course, more and more have to go to the bathroom. Like I am grumbling, there's grumbling, and I'm like, oh God, okay, I'm just gonna sit here, just gonna sit here. It's gonna be okay. The ballet starts. This ballet, by the way, it was not just any Saturday night. It was um, George Balanchine, who was the father of American ballet. He had passed in April of 1983, and this was his big production, um, Bugoku, which was a Japanese ballet not just any Japanese ballet. It was so perfect for a bunch of prepubescent children to be seeing because it was an erotic sexual fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) So as if we weren't really out of place already, um, the curtain rises and on either side of the stage are these big, sumo wrestler men in diapers playing these flutes, which were kind of like didgeridoos, but they weren't, they were just these big flutes, and the ballet is a very atonal ballet, Um, very uncomfortable sounding, but what was even more uncomfortable is they started blowing the the flutes and their cheeks would shake and their boobs would shake, and their bellies shook, and their legs shook, and boy, we just ripped out with laughter. <laughs> I mean, this was just too much for like pre pubescent or pu- you know puberty full children, right? The next thing that happens okay it 's an erotic fantasy, which I just want you to remember that with which you know. The um, costumes were minimal and the next thing that happens is, is like, you know, the ballerina comes out and the first scene is about like the man and the woman meeting each other. And, you know, yeah, we've seen female figures. We're used to that in America culture, no big deal. Um, but then the man comes out and he has no shirt on and he has these really tight white tights and you can see his perfectly firm buttocks and his mail package. And we just start like absolutely laughing hysterically. Like ridiculously hysterical. And people are like poking my mother saying, can you please control your children? Can you please control your children? This is not appropriate. And so we're laughing so hard that Amit sitting next to me lets out a little And I started laughing hysterical, and I slipped down in my seat, and I let out the biggest fart ever. (laughs) This was like a bass tuba fart. It was so loud. If you can imagine that when I let this fart out, every seat in Lincoln Center, all six rows of the balcony, leaned forward like this soundlet went whoosh and everybody is looking and they're like looking at me and not only that, the conductor went like this. (laughs) And I shrink into my seat and I am like, you did it in your sleep, you did it in your sleep, you did it in your sleep. And people are like, I think it was the little girl that farted. (laughs) I think it was the little girl that farted. And I am just melting. I'm 13 years old. You just don't even want to be seen when you're 13. And here, 2,500 people in Lincoln Center heard me. The conductor goes on. He continues with the ballet. Um, I'm not quite sure any ballet in Lincoln Center has ever been stopped by a fart before. So it's intermission, and we, you know, kind of are walking out with all our bags, and I'm telling you, everyone is like, Yeah, it was definitely the little girl, that little girl, that little girl farted. And we we roll out the pathway of the auditorium, and we are dying, and I'm dying. And we just collapse in the lobby, all of us with our bags, laughing hysterically. And my sister Jane, who's very mature, 16 years old, comes up to me and she says, if you're going to make it in high school... She really said this. If you're going to make it in high school, you are going to have to learn how to squeeze your buttocks tighter. (laughs) That's what happens when you let it go at Lincoln Center.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Rachel. Rachel Gouin hails from the gorgeous, lush state of New Jersey in a county where there were more cows than people. This is perhaps why it took her so long to learn the art of being cultured. She's lived in Missoula for 25 years and loves playing in the mountains and rivers of Montana with her partner, Jeremy, and their pups, along with all of her dear friends in Missoula. She socializes for a living because she is a social worker. Next week, tune in for Tell Us Something Live from Black Rock City in 2022 the artist, the writers, the creatives, those were other people. That's what other people did. My wife and I had spent 42 grand in cash on in vitro that didn't work.
1: And I wasn't just surprised, I was shocked. Like there wasn't enough room in my body for the blood. It was amazing.
0: Tune in for those stories on the next Tell Us Something podcast.
4: Hi, everyone. My name is Taylor Burby. I'm a Tell Us Something volunteer, and I'm here to thank our sponsors. Thanks again to our title sponsor, The Good Food Store. Learn more about The Good Food Store at goodfoodstore.com. Thank you to our stewardship sponsor, Missoula Electric Cooperative. The Tell Us Something stewardship program gives away free tickets to people who may for whatever reason, not have otherwise been able to attend the event. Learn more about the Missoula Electric Co-op and see if you qualify to join over at MissoulaElectric.com. Thanks to our storyteller sponsor, Clearwater Credit Union. Because of them, we were able to pay the storytellers. And Clear Water Credit Union is where Tell Us Something trusts them with all of our financial needs. Learn more about Clearwater Credit Union at clearwatercreditunion.org. And thanks to our accessibility sponsor, Garden Mother. Because of their generosity, we can provide ASL interpreters for our friends in the Deaf community. Learn more about Garden Mother at gardenmother.com. Thanks to our media sponsors, MissoulaEvents.net, Sushihana, the first best sushi bar in the last best place. Find out more and have a look at the menu at SushiMissoula.com. Missoula Missoula Broadcasting Company, including the family of ESPN Radio, The Trail 103.3, Jack FM and Missoula Source for Modern Hits, U 104.5, learn more at MissoulaBroadcasting.com. True Food Missoula, farm-to-table food delivery. Check them out at TrueFoodCSA.com. Thanks to our in-kind sponsors, Float Missoula. Learn more at FloatMSLA.com.
0: Thanks, Taylor. Hey, this is Gabe from Gecko Designs. We're proud to sponsor
2: Tell Us Something. Learn more at GeckoDesigns.com.
1: Hi, it's Joyce from Joyce of Tile. If you need tile work done, give me a shout. I specialize in custom tile installations. Learn more and see some examples of my work at JoyceOfTile.com.
0: Thanks to Cash for Junkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at CashForJunkersBand.com. To learn more about Telesomething, please visit Telesomething.org.